pretty much every time I was in those towers, Hess would be in his prison cell screaming, absolutely screaming the place down. Let me just say it was quite scary as a young 18-year-old sitting in a pitch black listening to the screaming for two hours. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Dave Phillips is a yeoman warder at the Tower of London. The yeoman warders have been guarding the tower since Tudor times. Dave joined the British Army aged 16 into the Royal Irish Rangers. We hear of his early years in the army in Northern Ireland and his posting to West Berlin. In West Berlin, Dave is part of the force that guarded Rudolf Hess, a leading member of the Nazi party in Nazi Germany and appointed deputy Führer to Adolf Hitler in 1933. In 1941, Hess made a solo flight to Scotland where he hoped to arrange peace talks with the British. He was arrested and stood trial at the 1946 Nuremberg trials of major war criminals. The court convicted him of crimes against peace and of conspiracy with other German leaders to commit crimes and he was given a life sentence in Berlin's Spandau prison. Dave describes his interactions with Hess as well as the guard duties and operation of the prison. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Aid Brandt, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially, quite simply because it's the best history podcast out there, and I want to make sure it continues. Keep going, Ian, and thank you. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our vibrant Facebook discussion group and on Twitter, I'm delighted to welcome Dave Phillips to our Cold War conversation. Probably from the age of about 13 or 14, I always wanted to be a soldier. And to me, a soldier was, I know today, an infantry soldier. I never really wanted to drive tanks, fix things. It was just an infantry soldier. I think something we all dream of as kids when we're playing cowboys and Indians, that sort of thing. Um, So it's just something I naturally moved into um, when I left school. At what age did you join? I joined at 16. So I was about 16 and three months when I joined up. Wow. And what did your parents think of you joining the army? I think they were very proud. Um, I come from quite a humble background in the east end of London. And what I didn't realize at the time, but realized many years later, is that by leaving home, um, my family's life became that much better because it was one less mouth to feed, one less person to clothe. Um, so, of course, they had a little bit more disposable income. And I then, um, as a young soldier, we were encouraged to send money home um, to our parents. So, consequently, my parents had less to spend and more income coming in. So, it actually improved the, the outcomes for the whole family. What were the experiences like? joining the army so young what were those initial days like were they what you expected or were they challenging for you 
I think it was very challenging because the first thing I did was got on a boat over to Northern Ireland because I joined the Royal Irish Rangers. And at the time, our training depot was in Ballymena. Now, I don't know why. I just assumed that I would be trained before I went to Northern Ireland. But of course, I went over there as a young 16-year-old boy and did my training there. Very, very robust training, shall I say. Um, and very enjoyable training. Uh, I think a bit like everyone who joins the army, it's a complete change of life. Uh, but I came from quite a disciplined background, had spent time in the scouts, the cubs. I was a Red Cross volunteer. So I'd done a lot of sort of things as a child. And I've been working on Saturday jobs and evening jobs. So to me, it was just a continuation of that, um, but with pay. Yeah, always good. Always good. Being stationed in Northern Ireland, you, you're there during the Troubles. Were you allowed any time outside of uh, the the barracks or the or the military installation, or were you very much sort of kept in enclosed? Well, for the first term, we didn't really get out much. You were sort of confined to camp. But once the first term, the first um, three and a half months was up, we were then allowed out. Now, of course, on weekends off, I couldn't really come home to London. Uh, so I'd go off all around Northern Ireland with friends who were from Northern Ireland. And so, yeah, there was no real restrictions. And I think probably because of my age, um, I didn't look like a soldier because I was 16 years of age. I probably had short hair at the time um, and an English accent, which wouldn't have helped. But I probably got away with a lot because I just didn't look like a soldier. It's difficult to imagine now what Northern Ireland was was like then. But, um, I mean, presumably you were you were told sort of what to watch out for and how to be careful when you were out. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, I was, um, I was going away for the weekends with friends who'd spent their whole lives living in Northern Ireland and understood the, um, the place where you could and couldn't go. So I, I can't ever remember an occasion where I felt unsafe or scared or anything along those lines because I was always with someone who knew the areas very well. What was the training like? It was very, very tough. I mean, I went from a, um, a very skinny little 16-year-old child um, who didn't really play much sport. I was I was really fit. I didn't run or didn't do any football, things like that. Just the normal playing out with my friends. Um, so going from nothing to running, probably within weeks, we were running four or five miles in sports kit. And then, of course, it slowly progressed up to carrying heavy weight and running much further distances and much tougher terrain. Um, and it, it was the making of me, to be honest. I, I became a man within the space of a year whilst training with the army. And was that the period of your your initial training? One year of training as a junior soldier, and you then pass out of training, and you you had a couple of weeks leave, and then posted off to my unit, which was the Second Battalion of Royal Irish Rangers at the time, stationed down in Tidworth in Wiltshire. Um, and that's when you start then, obviously, continuation training um, on specialist weapons, things like that. Did you have a, a specialist role that you uh, moved into? Uh, my initially, I moved into a rifle company as an infantry soldier, and I was the machine gunner because I was actually quite a reasonable shot. Um, but I think more likely it's because when we went on exercises and things, they gave the new boy the big heavy machine gun to carry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You fell for that one then. Yeah, so I think it was less to do with being a good shot with a machine gun and more to be the new boy. Yeah. Give him all the heavy stuff. 
Yeah. So uh, what what came next? Where where were you uh, posted after Tidworth? Well, I went, um, did several overseas exercises from Tidworth, um, and then eventually in December 1981, I was posted to Berlin as one of the three infantry battalions that were stationed out there. What what did you make of Berlin at that time? It was a really, really interesting place. I mean, I went out there, I was, what, 18 years of age, um, so a young single man suddenly getting extra money living in this fantastic city, um, divided city, of course, but it was a real shock to the system, having sort of lived in this tiny little town, Tidworth, down in Wiltshire, to go into live in the middle of a major city, um, a very cosmopolitan city, and for two years, I had a lot of fun and did quite a lot of interesting things while I was there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every uh, service person that I've spoken to that's stationed in Berlin said it's one of the best postings they ever had with, without, you know, any, any exception. Yeah. It, it was a, a fantastic opportunity. I really, really enjoyed it. Of course, being during the Cold War with the Berlin Wall still been up, it was quite interesting historically. Presumably you were taken on an orientation tours of East Berlin and made your own trips over there as well? Yeah, we did. It, it, again, very, very interesting. We did um, trips very often over to East Berlin. One of my colleagues was married to a, um, a West German lady and we were fortunate in that she could organise trips to get us across to East Berlin to go and have platoon parties, things like that. Um, and of course, being a fluent German speaker, it just sort of oiled the cogs a little bit and we had some really fantastic times in East Berlin and got to walk around and of course whilst in East Berlin we had to wear full dress uniform and number two dress uh, because the last thing you want is to be walking around in civilian clothes and being accused of being a spy so by by putting on a uniform you could never then be accused of spying because it was very obvious I was a British army soldier and well, what sort of reaction did you get from people in East Berlin to uh, to that? I think generally wonder um, because we were quite well fed, quite fit young men um, in a very nice uniform compared to some of the East German soldiers who were obviously very hungry, very poorly paid, conscript army, and they saw us as a professional army and it would have, it would have looked very, very different to what they were used to as soldiers. And of course, compared to the East Berliners, we were very, very wealthy. Um, so when we went over for things like parties or in shopping, what I would consider pocket change to them would be a you know a day's wages. Um, so when we left tips in restaurants or in bars, we didn't realise at the time, but we would be leaving, you know, half a day's pay in a tip, which to us was pennies, but to them was a great deal of money. And did you have much interaction with East German civilians, or were they just wary of being seen talking to you? No, exactly that. I think they were very wary of being seen um, talking to anybody in uniform just in case somebody was watching them and, you know, the, the friendliness would be misconstrued. Presumably you uh, you saw the uh, the East German Army parade at the Neuerwacker in Berlin with the Gustav. Yes, well, had some photographs done as we all do. You had an interest in the history of, of Berlin as well. No, I'll be honest, I didn't. Um, at the time, a young 18-year-old soldier, I, it was to me, it was just another place that the army had sent me, which I quite enjoyed. And it it was years later when I really started getting into history as I travelled the world. 
I sort of look back at my time there and thought, you know, I was involved in some very important historical events. I just didn't appreciate it that much at the time. So I think my my love of history came later. And I then looked back on it and started doing some research on Berlin. Now, your your role in Berlin is, is, is an interesting one because um, part of your role is uh, looking after a rather unusual prisoner. Yeah, prisoner number seven, Herr Rudolf Hess in Spandau. A very interesting time. Um, and again, one of the many duties I did in Berlin. So, you know, I probably guarded Hess on somewhere between, I, I would guess, about eight to 10 occasions in the two years I was stationed there. And that was a 24-hour duty in Spandau prison. And what what was that like, guarding Hess? It was very, very interesting because to go into a, a prison as a soldier, to walk into a prison to guard a prisoner. I mean, I think the Spandau was set up for something like 600 prisoners. And by the time we got there in 1981, he was the only prisoner there. And by that stage, he'd already been the only prisoner in Spandau for about 15 years. And it was a very interesting time because whilst we were not encouraged to speak to him, um, and we certainly weren't allowed to give him anything, of course we had to to carry out our duties because we would have to take him from his cell block out into the, the yard, the grounds, where he had a summer house. And he would sit and write and paint and draw. Um, he was very much into poetry and he would write poetry. And surprisingly, knowing the history of who he was and why he was there, he was a very gently spoken man, very softly spoken, um, which didn't really fit in with the image you have of you know, the right-hand man to Adolf Hitler. What sort of interactions did you have with him? Very, very little. I mean, we spoke to him because we had to. And of course, just being humans, trying to sort of pass the time of day, we would chat to him. And he was, a lot of his speech was very garbled. He would come out with random sentences, particularly against um, the Jewish population. He was he was very anti-Jewish and he would just come out with a random statement about the way they are affecting this planet. And astrology was another one. I remember him talking about you know, the stars and planets say this, the stars and planets say that. And he was very much into that sort of at the time. But again, it was just, it was almost like the ramblings of a crazy old man. They they weren't coherent sentences. It would be a random sentence just thrown into a normal conversation. Really quite weird. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I interviewed somebody who had been uh, a translator for him at Spandau and mentioned his room which or he had a room which had some astrological charts on it yeah because it, it was quite strange when we were there he he still lived in a, a cell um but the cell was open um so his room um it was open and he could walk along the corridors and he could go and make himself a cup of coffee or a sandwich or a bit of toast or something um but of course he was still in self-confinement because He's in this wing of a prison all on his own. So I suppose a bit like being in um, solitary confinement because you've got no one else to talk to apart from the guards who, in most cases, were forbidden to talk to him. What would a normal day for Hess be like? Well, he was um, he would generally get up quite early in the morning um, and he would get showered, changed, and just have breakfast. 
he would then come out into the exercise yard, depending on the weather. Sometimes he would just sit in his room and he'd be painting um, or reading books. Um, and very often he would just come out into the grounds. He would walk around, sit down in the um, summer house for a couple of hours, either reading or painting, drawing, that sort of thing, and then back to his cell. So we only had a, a very short space of time in his company because it tended to be the senior NCOs and the officers who looked after him in the um, the rooms, you know, the cells. We generally dealt with him out on the ground. And, of course, most of our day when we weren't escorting him as such, because it was always a four-man escort, we would be in the guard towers around the prison. So actually guarding um, for any attempts to obviously break him out or for him to break out. Not that I think that was likely. He was a very elderly man by the time I got there. Yeah, I guess the, the fear was some... Um... You know, neo-Nazis would try and liberate him, I guess. Yeah, that was. I think that was always the fear because all of our guard towers were looking outwards rather than inwards because I don't think it was any, you know, 93 like that. He wouldn't have been climbing over walls. Yeah, he's hardly going to be digging his own tunnel, is he? No, absolutely not. So if somebody did try and attempt to get into the, uh, the prison, were your orders to um presumably fire on them i know there were there were sort of signs outside spandau's it, it was something along the lines of uh, military zone keep away live ammunition in use or something like that so yes potentially we had a um permission if you like to open fire if we could justify it um i don't ever remember any occasion where anybody made their weapon ready because nobody was attacking that prison um you know generally if you did have any security incident, there is generally tourists getting a little bit too close and then somebody would go out on patrol and just tell them to move away from the fence but i don't ever remember any major incidents or incursions they just you know minor minor incursions up against a fence or something like that and i guess you know being in those guard towers it's it's uh quite a a dull job i mean how long were the shifts up in those we, we spent about two hours of time in there and probably the worst thing was going through the night yeah, because you're in the guard tower on your own and two o'clock in the morning it's pitch black apart from the spotlights and the one thing i always stuck in my mind is that pretty much every time i was in those towers hess would be in his prison cell screaming absolutely screaming the place down you know as though he was in real agony and i know again i didn't know at the time but looking back on it and reading lots of things he was always complaining about stomach ulcers and he believed his food was being poisoned. He would very often try and swap his food with the guards or with other people. Um, and it was just, he would literally sit there in his cell for two, three hours at night, two o'clock in the morning, just screaming at the top of his voice. And no matter who went in to see him, whether it was doctors, some of our officers, senior NCOs, he just, nothing would placate him. It was just something he did. Now, where was that because of his mental health at the time? or just that he believed everyone was trying to kill him. But it was, it, let me just say it was quite scary as a young 18-year-old sitting in a pitch black listening to the screaming for two hours. That must have been really eerie, because particularly echoing round an empty prison designed for, you know, 600 people or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was just, of course, you're just sitting there all on your own listening to this for two hours whilst trying to concentrate on securing the prison. Um, yeah, it was very, very eerie, and I, I think it was scary. I think most people were worried whilst they're in there. I mean, I'm not a believer in ghosts, but a lot of people believe there were ghosts there. And 
when you're sitting there at two o'clock in the morning, pitch black, thinking about ghosts, and suddenly this screaming starts. Mm-hmm. In. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll put this out as our Halloween episode, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So what access did Hess have to media? Did he have any access to TV, radio, or newspapers? He did have a... I don't remember him ever ever having newspapers, but he certainly had a radio. Um, But even that was limited because whilst he had a radio and a TV in there, whilst we were there, and I believe with the French Americans, when the Russians went in, they would take everything off him. They didn't want him knowing anything about what was happening in the outside world. And... I remember him telling me once that he hated when the Russians came because they just made his life miserable. And I think for very obvious reasons, bearing in mind what he tried to do to their country. Um, but he was treated particularly badly by the Russians. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that because the the British, French and the Americans and the Soviets effectively being the occupying powers in Berlin, they took turns to uh, guard Hess. So how, how long was each term of, of guard for each of the uh, the allied, in inverted commas, nations? Well, it, it varied because, um, for instance, when the British Army were on duty, we could be on duty for four or five weeks. But within that period, all three regiments took it in turns. Um, so in effect, my battalion may well have, in that six-week period, for argument's sake, may well have done five or six days then had a break, then did a few more days, and then one of the other regiments would take over. So it was just switched around. But it was normally about six weeks per nation, and then it switched over. And there was always a big, although I never personally did one, there was a big um, parade where you sort of swapped over between uh, the Americans, the French, the British, and the Soviets, always slightly different. And the one thing I do remember is when the, uh, the Russians were on duty, we had a platoon of 30 men would guard Spandau prison. Uh, as with the Americans and the French, it was a similar number of platoon strength. And when the Russians came over, they would have about 50 men. And I have no doubt in my mind that they were not all infantry soldiers, you know, because it was the perfect opportunity during the Cold War to come over to West Berlin, because they're now on duty at Spandau, and um, have a wander around and look at our barracks and count our tanks and look at our soldiers and things like that. The same as we were doing to them, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Spandau Prison, it was located close to your barracks? Yes, it was. Um, we could walk there within, oh, less than 10 minutes because there were there were three barracks around the prison, um, two infantry battalions, and there was a Royal Engineer Squadron there as well. And then the third infantry battalion were much further away. They were over near the airport cladder. But yeah, we, we could walk there 
less than 10 minutes to walk to the prison. Was Hess allowed visitors? No, no. Uh, I don't ever remember any... The only visitors he ever had was his doctor, his GP. So whenever he felt ill, um, he would have a, um, a GP come and see him. And a couple of times, he would, while I was there, he was taken off to um, the British Military Hospital for treatment. And again, something I never did, that was mainly done by the Royal Military Police, but they had a whole wing that they would seal off for him when he was in, in, um, in hospital, and he would live in there. His end is sort of shrouded in some mystery, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because, um, I mean, the story is he um, used a flex from a, a lamp and hung himself in the summer house in 1987. Um, and there was, there's always been a lot of conspiracy theories. And I think the best, you know, the, the conspiracy theory that he was murdered by the Brits, by the secret intelligence services, um, that's one of the common ones I've heard. Um, and a lot of people believe it wasn't really him there, that it was a body double that he'd been switched over. And I read something some years ago, and it was actually a German um, guy that did some DNA testing and said that there was a, something like a 99.9% .9 match with a living relative today. So it was Hess, despite what many people have told me over the years. Even still today at the Tower of London, whilst at work, I get people whose great-granddad was a dentist and treated Rudolf Hess, and the teeth didn't match his x-rays. And, and I probably hear something along those lines four or five times a year, even today, that people don't believe it was him. Yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a feat to carry out that act of being a body double for for that length of time. I mean, who yeah. who would do that? But I mean, you you've got a direct connection with Hess with your with your work at the the Tower of London because he was held there for a while, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was held here for four days because after he parachuted into Scotland, um, he was eventually brought down to the Tower of London because, of course, this was a prisoner of war collection centre, and he lived in the King's House. Um, a building that was actually erected as a wedding present for Queen Anne Boleyn. Um, unfortunately, she was finished before the building, so she never got to live in it. And living in there today is a man called the Constable of the Tower. So he's the King's representative here at the Tower, and he looks after the Tower on behalf of the um, the King. But that was where Rudolf Hess was imprisoned, um, and then he was guarded by, at the time, the Scots Guards. Did you did you converse with Hess in German, or was he was his English okay? No, his English was okay. And to be honest, my German at that stage was quite bad, so I uh, any communication was done in English, and his English was reasonable. And as I say, it's surprising for the the people I've met through my life that you know when you meet a, a, someone who's got an aura around them, someone like. Uh, President Obama, I met him here at the Tower of London, and he had an awe around him, uh, you know, a very powerful man. And Hess was the exact opposite, a very quietly spoken, almost effeminate man. Um, but there was an awe around him, and you just, and I think probably based on what I knew about him and his background, that aura of sort of evil. But he, he never said or did anything to me that made him, made me think he was evil. It was just, I think, knowing what he had done and been involved in. And you, you get that impression that I, I wouldn't trust this man, even though he's quite softly spoken. Because mm. I, I understand that he had very piercing blue eyes. Yes, yeah, he did. 
Yeah, he's um, when you look at any photographs of him, you'll see that that he's not only piercing blue eyes, but very very thick eyebrows. So he gave that impression of a very dark eye with a piercing blue eyeball. Yeah, quite menacing looking. But as I say, but you know, as a a late eighties man, it didn't really affect me. Yeah, because yeah. he was um, he was quite an elderly gentleman by then. Yeah did he did he ever get angry with with you or with the with the guards? Not with me personally, but I I have heard stories from other friends that when things didn't go his way, and I, I think one of the one of the things he was quite adept at doing was getting people in trouble and it was almost like fun for him to get people in trouble it gave him something to do in the day because one of the things you weren't allowed to do is to give him anything um and i remember a story where a friend had been on duty and given rudolf hess a cigarette and rather than spark up the cigarette he took it to the officer of the guard and said that soldier over there just gave me this cigarette that soldier immediately goes to jail um and he knew that and it was all, almost his fun to see if I can get these soldiers in trouble. Even though he physically couldn't do anything, it was a, a way of sort of mentally challenging himself to just get people in trouble because he could. And when the Soviets came in, was he confined to his cell then so he wasn't able to make his toast or make a coffee? Or, or what, what was his situation then? Well, he, he certainly had a lot less freedoms, um, whereas we didn't really mind him walking along the um, the cell block and doing anything. Apparently, it, it was, he said himself that um, he much prefers it when we were on duty because we're a little bit more lenient. Um, and I think, to be honest, it was just that human kindness that this elderly man wants to make a cup of tea. Why would you stop him? He wants to have a bit of toast or a sandwich. You know, what would what would make you not let him do that? But of course, I hadn't lived through what the Russians had lived through with Germany. Uh, but then again, nor many of their soldiers that were on duty. But I suppose their parents and grandparents had. And it was their way of paying him back. Fascinating. Fascinating, Dave. Really appreciate that. I've got some other questions I'd like to ask you about Berlin. Presumably, you did training there at Rue Laban and Doughboy City. Can you describe any of that to me? To be honest, it was all it was all pretty mundane military training, just keeping our skills up to date. Because a lot of the big training areas, um, you had to leave Berlin to go down to the, the likes of Hona or Senelaga. Um, so the Ruleben Ranges was just a small area where we could do live firing, um, and the same with Doughboy. It was, um, I think, it was American run, if I remember. And we used to use it occasionally. Um, but yeah, all the big exercise we did, we went down to Hona because at the time I was in the anti-tank platoon firing Wombats, big 120mm gun. So, of course, there was nowhere in Berlin we could fire. Um, so we had to go down to Hona or Senelaga to do any live firing with that, um, just keeping our skills up to date. And, of course, fantastic place for running around the Grunewald, um, lots of water sports there on the lakes, on the Havel. Um, yeah, it was um, it was a good place for keeping fit, but military training was very very limited because of space. I love uh, the the British Army humour of calling Doughboy City Delboy City. I think it was it was known, and also probably my favourite is when they 
uh, demolished Spandau prison. There was a supermarket built on the site, which... Uh, the Britannia Centre. Yeah, which was uh, christened Hesco's. Um, yes, that's right. And for those of you that uh, aren't familiar with um, what, what that means, there's a British supermarket called Tesco's. So uh, that's uh, that's the uh, connection there. But uh, love love that sort of humour. I mean, what was your role in Berlin should they, uh, Soviets and East German army, come over the wall? Well, I would have deployed with my um, team as an anti-tank gunner and we had set locations where we would deploy to um, and basically survive as long as we could. And it, it, Because the there was a, a theory that if the Russians were ever to, to breach the wall, the likelihood is they're either going to drive straight through Berlin out the other side or probably more likely just bypass Berlin and blockade it so we'd all starve to death in there. Um, that was the theory. But that was it. We, we would literally deploy to pre-known locations and await the arrival of the Russians and obviously take out as many as we could with our anti-tank guns. And that was pretty much it. It was called Exercise Rocking Horse at the time, where if Rocking Horse was called, it was basically you go back to camp from wherever you are and immediately deploy to your um, war position. And where were your your war positions for your wombat team? Spread all over Berlin. I mean, we had um, several locations because once you turned up, you would actually have um, a list of locations. I remember sitting on one of the bridges once over the um, the harbour, awaiting something coming over the bridge. And whilst we were sitting there defending the bridge, the Royal Engineers would be um, wiring it up, ready to blow it, should it be required. But yeah, it was just a list of locations and we would deploy wherever, whichever one we were sent to. I think each one had a code name. And I have to say it was a long time ago. Yeah, I'm not expecting you to. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it would just, you would literally, you would be given a code name and you then knew you had to go to grid reference, whatever, um, and defend that area. And it was, a, yeah, it was the, the deployment locations we all knew and we would regularly go out and recce them just to remind ourselves of the, the views from there. And what we were liable to be um, looking at when the enemy did attack. What did your officers tell you or, or tell you about, uh, I guess, the chances of survival and what you were up against? I mean, how did they sort of keep your morale up? To be fair, as you mentioned earlier about the military sense of humour, I don't think they had to keep my, my morale up, not in Berlin. Um, but we were under no illusions that if Russia attacked, our lives would be measured in, if we were lucky, days, um, but probably more likely hours on a mass attack with um, you know such small numbers in Berlin. And I think the, the general consensus was they wouldn't bother fighting. Why would you fight through a city when you can just bypass it? Um, and that's what I think we were all hoping for. So you'd end up being a sort of uh, huge prisoner of war camp? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think that was the, the general plan. And if they were to come through, it would have just been vicious fighting within a city. Like any city, when you um, you start fighting in built-up areas, it becomes vicious. Because I guess you're... I mean, because where the British sector was and certainly where the barracks was and Spandau is right up against uh, the East German border. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. We we could walk from our barracks to the wall. But it, it was one of those things in Berlin. It was always a strange time because they had a few incidents before I was living there where people practiced um, exercise rocking horse without telling anyone. And a lot of German people believed that was the start of the Third World War. Um, so after that, they, they had a very serious incident where a couple of old ladies who'd lived through the Second World War who had their father's Luger um, and somebody called a rocking horse on Saturday night without warning and they believed it was World War Three, and they um, took their own lives because they didn't want to live through another war. Mm. And consequently, whenever we did that in the future, it was always publicized in the local press to say that we're going to rehearse our deployments, which was, from a soldier's point of view, was quite good because we knew exactly when it was going to happen. But from a point of view of testing your readiness, it was probably very bad because you knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have much interaction with the other occupying forces? Um, particularly the Americans, yes. Uh, not so much the French or the Russians, um, because we used to use a lot of facilities in the American bases, particularly socializing. Their, their social clubs were very good. Um, so we'd go and have a little bit of banter with the American soldiers and airmen and use their NAF, or I'm sorry, not NAFI, their PX because it was much cheaper and much better equipped than ours. I think I had somebody tell me about the stakes that they had there were very popular. And so not much interaction with the with the French then? No, not really. No, I mean, we did a few exercises, you know, went on, on exercise with the French and the Americans, but socialising tended to be down the American sector because it was quite a nice part of Berlin as well. And the French sector wasn't as popular. How did the... You know, the West Berlin locals treat you. Were they um, happy to have you there? They were. We had a really, really good um, relationship with the locals, um, probably because we were spending our money in their bars and restaurants and shops and things. Uh, but we did a lot of charity work. I mean, I've always done charity work all the way through my life. And so, yeah, we were we had locally employed civilians working within the camps you know, with eat in their restaurants. I was very fortunate once to be invited to a, a German friend. Uh, his cousin, I think, was being married and invited a group of us because we'd all become quite friendly. And we went off to a, a German wedding. So, yeah, really good relationship. I think all, certainly in those years, all of the British Army had quite good relationships with local people, quite friendly. And it was a good way of practicing my German. Yeah. How, how good did your German get, Dave? It was quite reasonable. Um, I actually did German at school. And after about six months, it was one of the subjects I dropped, thinking, you know, I'm never going to speak German. <laughs> and six years later, I was stationed in Berlin. Um, but actually, it was quite good because with that basic understanding of the language, you know, it's like any language, if you're trying to learn it, the best way is to immerse yourself with the locals and practice. You know, they were practicing their English with me. I was practicing my German with them. And very often got the grammar wrong and was corrected and they would do the same. You know, they would get their English wrong, I'd correct it. So a really good way of learning. So I, I came back after two years quite reasonably, um, I wouldn't say fluent, but I was certainly better than colloquial in German. And in your leisure time, what did you uh, get up to? 
Oh, pretty much what most soldiers do when off duty. You know, we used to go to the library, visit elderly relatives, <laughs> and, and go to the operas. Yeah, and no, yeah. to be honest, it, it was it was like most soldiers do when off duty. We would go to local bars, um, we would go to restaurants, the cinema. Um, there was a very good swimming pool in Spandau, an open air swimming pool which we'd use. Um, and as I say, a lot of opportunities for water sports. Um, so it just all in all, a very good social life um, because you are living in a beautiful cosmopolitan city um, with lots of history, um, lots of fine restaurants and pubs. So we just made use of all of those, to be honest. Yeah, because I, I, I visited uh, West Berlin before the wall came down and it didn't feel like you were in uh, you know, an island in the middle of East Germany. You know, you had the lakes, yeah. the beaches, the woods, the cosmopolitan city. You know, you had almost the best of all worlds there. Yeah, well, it was interesting because having spent three, uh, two years there, sorry, um, some years ago, a friend of ours was working over in a British school. Uh, we went to stay with her for a week. And it was really quite funny because we got off the, um, the U-Bahn making our way to her house. And I was looking at Alexanderplatz where she lived. And I was looking at the famous um, TV aerial that stands there. Mm. And it all looked familiar, but different. And it wasn't until we got to her house, I realized why it looked different is because I was in East Berlin. And she actually lived in what was East Berlin, the other side of the wall. So I was looking at everything from the wrong side. Yeah. And it was really strange because that was only uh, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, we went there. And that was the first time I'd been back to Berlin since 1983. So it was a very different feel to it. You're there until December 83. Yes. Yeah. So how did you feel about leaving Berlin? I was quite sad, actually, because it was a really, really nice posting. And, I mean, unbeknown to me, it was only my second posting in the army because, of course, I went to Tidworth in Wiltshire, which is just a massive big military garrison and not much else. A nice base for going up to London and things like that. Um, but to suddenly go from this tiny little garrison town to a huge cosmopolitan city was fantastic. And so a little bit sad leaving there because we were then posted to Dover down in Kent. Um, quite a nice town and very handy for getting ferries across to Europe. But it was, yeah, I think I think a bit of regret because I'd had such a fantastic couple of years there. And whilst I was there, I got promoted, which was another good thing. I think we're quite sad about leaving. Now, you did mention to me before we went on air about an interesting incident while you were at Spandau. And at some point in my career in Berlin, um, my platoon of, would have been about 30 or 40 of us, was sent over to Spandau prison. And just in working clothes, I mean, we were in dirty uniform and told, going across there, you're going to do some fatigues in the um, the prison. And I really don't know why it was being done. But there was a, a wing in the prison that had to be cleared. So we went over there and had dirty fatigues clothes, ready to sweep rooms, throw rubbish in the bins, what we expected. And actually, when we got there, what was very, very interesting is that there was a uh, four generals stood in the grounds. There was a British, a French, an American, and a Soviet general all stood. Watching. Now, I'm saying general, it could have been brigadiers, but it was certainly high-ranking officers um, for me as a young large corporal. And we went into this wing and we were basically told, clear everything out of that wing, it has to be brought out into the um, the grounds and then it would be decided what was going to happen to it. 
And the bit that really, really now, looking back on it, really wound me up was we found boxes and boxes of what we in the British Army would call occurrence books. So in a guard room, you have a huge book that anything unusual that happens during your tour of duty is written in this book. And we found boxes and boxes of these, what appeared to be occurrence books, and they were thrown on a fire in the middle of the grounds and destroyed. Um, all of that history was burnt in front of us because nothing was allowed to leave the uh, prison. How we were finding um, prison uniforms for the prisoners as opposed to the guards, all of that was destroyed. All metal work was put on a truck and taken away and scrapped. Um, and it was just, it was one of those things that when I look back at it now, and I think of all of the history we burned, and nobody had the foresight to say, well, actually, let's keep this and get it translated and find out what it is. It was just put it in that fire and burn it. Yeah, we spent a whole day just emptying this wing and everything in there was just destroyed or thrown in the scrap heap. And did you ever find out why they wanted to clear out that wing? No, I think it just had been empty so long. I assume at some stage somebody had gone in there, seen all of this stuff and said, we really need to get this out because... Like always with Spanda, there was there was always this fear, and this I think is why it was demolished. There was fear that people would go and collect souvenirs, mm-hmm. um, you know, take a brick from Spandau Prison and say this is where Hess and many other prisons were held. And I suppose the same with these uniforms, um, all of these documents and things like that. They were just all destroyed. At the time, I don't think I really thought that much about it, but when I look back on it years later, you know, all of that history was just burned. Strange, strange thing. It's a strange story. Yeah. Um, can you remember where you were when you heard that the Berlin Wall had opened? No. Um, 19... <laughs> That's the best answer I've had to that question, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where were you when it happened? I don't know. Um, oh, God, when was it? 1987. November 89, it was. 89, sorry. Oh my God! Where would I would have been? I would have been stationed in Netherhaven, working on the anti-tank division. I don't. I, do you know what? I don't. I really don't remember any reaction to it. Dave, don't worry. Don't worry. It was a long time ago. Um, tell me about the next stage in your career. Yes, down in Dover. Yeah, because I'd come back from. I'd been in the anti-tank platoon with Wombat, a big one twenty gun in Berlin, and then we transferred over to Milan. In fact, in Berlin, we had half and half. The platoon was split in half. We had six guns and six Milan firing posts. But then, of course, when we go down to Dover, it's all Milan. And then you've got an operational tour in Northern Ireland, and I presume Milan is not part of the 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 picture there, or, or Wombat. No. No, that, no, that's going back to being an infantry soldier patrolling um, that tour I did, South Armagh. So... That was back to being a rifle company soldier um, as a corporal. So it was quite a, um, a sad tour. We lost a few people there. It was quite a um, a bad tour. I was actually attached at that tour to the Royal Anglian Regiment because, of course, at the time, I was in the Royal Irish Rangers and we weren't allowed to serve in Northern Ireland, even though I'd done a, my training in Northern Ireland, but it wasn't an operational tour. So I, I had to go across with another regiment for a, um, a six-month tour of South Armagh. Well, I say I had to. I didn't have to. I chose to. I volunteered. You are attached to the UN in Cyprus for a period as well. Can you tell me about that? I did a, um, a six-month tour 
um, in Cyprus. So it's actually three months working with the United Nations up at Nicosia um, on the Green Line as a peacekeeper, uh, basically patrolling and guarding the border between uh, north and south of Cyprus. And then I had three months down in Decalia, um, carrying out military training, R&R, things like that. Lots of water sports, I remember. There's a common theme here, Dave. I like water. I've always been a water baby. I like, I like, I've always liked water skiing, canoeing, sailing, anything on the water. Always been quite keen. I should have joined the Navy, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, any any incidents you had to deal with, with with that UN posting, or was it relatively quiet on the Green Line? No, it was relatively quiet, although um, I had one interesting case where I was out um, off duty and I was in sports kit running along the UN line because there was a pathway that we could use for fitness training. And whilst I was running along there, a Turkish soldier decided that I was an invasion force because he took a pot shot at me. Um, fortunately, he was a very bad shot. And I remember the second half of the run being a lot faster than the first half. Um, but it, whether he fired at me, I, I, to this day, I don't know. All I know is that a soldier fired a shot and it was aimed in my general direction, but he missed. Wow. Um, he was a very badly trained soldier. And it it came down, apparently, that he thought I was an invasion force. In my sports kit, I was going to invade northern Cyprus. Wow. Mm. But apart from that, it was a relatively uh, nice tour. That was just one interesting thing that happened while I was there. You're in this infantry battalion until... December '88. What 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 then happens in '89 uh, for you? Well, I'd, I'd got off on while well, I was doing my Milan um, courses down at Netherhaven. Um, I got went on the section commander's course and got a distinction, and was recommended for transfer to go to the small arms school corps. Um, and I decided then in '88 to go off and try selection, and fortunately passed it. And spent the rest of my career then. Obviously, I transferred out of the Royal Irish Rangers and became a sergeant in the Small Arms School Corps and then worked my way through various roles until I resigned from there in 2005 to come and work in my current role. And uh, what is your current role, Dave? I am currently a yeoman warder or beef eater at His Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. I can imagine you must really enjoy that job because you're always telling, you know, telling people about the history of that place. Yeah, I mean, we spend our day interpreting history for our visitors. And of course, you've got visitors from across the world, some with a great deal of knowledge, some with no knowledge. And it's not just the history of the Tower of London. It's British history. It's world history because there are connections here. I mean, Rudolf Hess, a classic example of, you know, history that stretches across the world in this one unique fortress you've also got the ceremonial side that you that you have to do as well yeah lots of ceremonies i mean the ceremony of the keys which we do every single night here and have done for over 700 years we're just about to have the constable's installation for the new constable general gordon messenger our first royal marine constable at the tower of london and of course the last um, 10 days or so we've been heavily involved in Operation London Bridge, um, sadly, um, guarding Her Majesty the late Queen Elizabeth II's coffin down at um, Westminster Hall. 
which has been a very trying time. Um, but very, very proud to be involved in that. I mean, it, mu- it must have been very strange for you because you, you swore allegiance to Her Majesty and then you're, you're there guarding her coffin in, in Westminster Hall. The last few days have been extremely emotional for the whole yeoman body, not just for me, because we all have served 30, 40 years um, in Her Majesty's Armed Forces here at the Tower of London as the, the Sovereign's bodyguard. Um, so, yeah, a great loss has been felt across the Tower community. Um, I think particularly with the yeoman body because of our military backgrounds. I was doing some uh, maths recently, and it works out between the 33 yeoman warders currently um, living and working at the Tower of London, we have got 885 years of military service between us. We also have 300, you know, 325 years of service here at the Tower of London. So in effect, 1,300 years service to Her Majesty the Queen. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. A, a, you know, a great sense of loss at the moment. So quite a sad time here at the Tower. But tied in with that, also the great, um, I suppose, honour to be involved in not only the funeral and lying in state, but of course, in the fullness of time, the great honour of being involved in the next coronation. Indeed. Indeed. Dave, I am immensely grateful for you sharing your story. My pleasure. Um, I think it's just a nice idea to record all of this um, verbal history so it's not lost in the fullness of time. People will be able to look back at this and hopefully learn something from it. Absolutely. And there's nothing like hearing it from somebody who was there is is really, you know, for, for me is one of the key things. You can read it in a book, but there's nothing like hearing it in the voice. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information